welcome to this episode of the Pop Trash Podcast. I'm Eric Griggs. And I'm Mike Jones. We're your hosts on this pop culture journey together, digging into camp, cult, and classic moments across history for discussion. Thanks for tuning in to listen. Bombs, disasters, flops. By any other name, they are the pop products that producers thought would be surefire hits, but fell flat on their faces. So the most agreed upon measure of failure is sales, whether it's records purchased or tickets sold. We might also consider another means of measurement. The public may make something a blockbuster, but the critics might make it out to be something more lackluster. Also, what does time do to the flops of the past? In what column do we place movies like The Wizard of Oz or The Rocky Horror Picture Show or Clue or others that flopped hard in the time of their initial release, but have since been reclaimed as cult masterpieces or even classics after decades of reevaluation. And the cherry on top of this melted Sunday, fan mobilization on platforms like change.org or review bombing rotten tomato takedowns that make a definitive easy answer to what makes a flop even more difficult by the day. Let's begin. Calling the season Top of the Flops, and our first episode is all about the diva flop. Yes, the word diva is out of fashion, but for a good number of years, it referred to those music superstars who could send an album flying up the charts and probably a publicist running for some Xanax. We're touching on three movies today starring some of the biggest pop divas in history. Who's That Girl, Madonna, Glitter, Mariah Carey, and Gigli, Jennifer Lopez, And sure, you probably know those three are considered box office trash. But how do the three films stack up decades later? And are there some redeeming qualities to these three flicks that may make you want to flip their definition from a flop? We're going to try to answer that question today. But before we get too much into this conversation, we probably should give you plot summaries of these movies, since it might have been decades since you've seen Who's That Girl, Glitter, or Gigli, or maybe you've never seen them. And trust me, if you've never seen them, you don't need to see them to listen to this (laughs) podcast. Oh, I've seen them. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start with Who's That Girl, and I'm going to throw to Eric. So why don't you give us the 20, 30 second summary? Here we go. Madonna's an ex-con, or was she just framed? Prepare for a 1980s comedy road trip throughout New York City into its suburbs as Madonna has to dodge the henchmen of a millionaire criminal who wants her back in prison or even killed. But at least Madonna finds love with Griffin Dunn and tames a wild cat, both of whom join her in a mad dash across the gritty city to stay alive and clear her name. Mike, remind us what glitter is all about. Here goes. I remember this one well. Mariah Carey is just your standard under-the-radar music powerhouse, chasing her dream after a tough start to life. We've got an absent mother, her childhood home being burned down, growing up in an orphanage, and then relegated to be backup singer while her golden pipes are stolen by another singer, Millie Vanilli style. Things start to sparkle, though, when she's discovered by a macho DJ who wants to be the biggest record producer in the land. And together, they rise to superstardom and experience the misery that comes from fame. 
Heavy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then last but not least, it is probably the most mispronounced movie in all of cinema history. It is not Giggly. It is not Jiggly. It is Gigli. Did you just call me Jiggly? <laughs> After this pandemic, trust me, I'm Jiggly. <laughs> All right. Well, I pulled the winner here to give the synopsis. It's turkey time. Huh? Gobble, gobble. What? Ben Affleck is a bumbling low-level gangster named Gigli sent to kidnap the younger, intellectually disabled brother of a federal prosecutor. But when crime bosses fear Gigli can't complete the mission, they send in a fixer, played by Jennifer Lopez, to assist him in making sure the job is done right. Inevitably, things go sideways, and Benefer teams up professionally and, of course, romantically to get themselves out of the mess they've gotten into. And you didn't even mention that there's a lesbian storyline. It is the 90s. Wait, was it? Nope, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't the 90s. (laughs) Hello. Hi there. Sorry I'm late. Just overcommitted myself. You understand, huh? It has been probably 30 years since I've seen Who's That Girl. It had 7.3 million in box office on a almost 20 million budget. So did not do well at the box office. It was a bit of a mixed bag from critics, but people just did not turn out to see this movie, which was originally called Slammer, changed to Who's That Girl after Madonna wrote that single. I think one of the redeeming things about this movie is the music that's a part of it that really does land. Interestingly about Who's That Girl, the movie itself flopped But the soundtrack was a smash. The title track provided Madonna with her sixth number one. It's that Spanglish chorus song that's less remembered than La Isla Bonita from the album before, which only went to number four on the charts. And Who's That Girl, the single, went to number one, which many people, they don't even remember the song. How about you? No, but this was the era where Madonna could literally have sang the phone book and it would have been a number one hit. I'm a big fan of Causing a Commotion, which is in the movie's credits the amazing animated sequence and 80s staple of the time. I mean, it pops up in Troop Beverly Hills. It pops up in Ruthless People, even Weekend at Bernie's too. But here, what's really fun about the music of Madonna and the credits is that it's advancing the plot. It gets a lot of the exposition out of the way about her being put in jail and being framed in in a really fun way with that bobbleheaded design that I think maybe people probably remember the credits more than the movie itself. You're right. You get an animated Madonna. It's very Roger Rabbit-esque, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, to open it up. When you look at Madonna's performance, I think there are parts of it that she has some real comedy sensibilities and things land well. There are other things that don't land as well. Her portrayal of Nikki Finn with that high-pitched Betty Boop voice with the Marilyn Monroe look, it was a choice. And it works in the beginning as Griffin Dunn's character is supposed to be irritated by her. And I think she's meant to kind of be endearing towards the end of the film. And that is a little shakier. There are parts where it works. They try to have her character have a bit of an arc, but it's stuck in 80s comedy. That's right. And I think one thing you said there is that Madonna made a choice with the way she approached this character. I agree. And who didn't get to make a choice, but who is also a very central character in this story is... 
Murray the tiger. <laughs> I don't actually think he's a tiger. He's a cougar, maybe a bobcat. I don't know. But for some reason, joining Madonna and Griffin Dunn in this sort of madcap car race around New York City, for some reason, this, this wildcat takes a liking to Madonna. Uh, she Her character is able to basically train him such that when she whistles, the cougar comes running. And it's just so funny uh, to see a, a wildcat, a central character <laughs> in a Madonna movie. At this point in movie history, Madonna was not the cougar in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is ferociously true. And I think I almost enjoy the relationship between Madonna and Murray more. Griffin Dunn is basically repeating his performance in After Hours, that madcap dash through New York City in one night. It's it's like that, but on steroids in a more 80s comedy way. But when Madonna whistles, takes off her shoes and runs up the hill of that New York City street and Murray the Tiger follows after her, I just think those are the cinema moments that I'm like, oh, I'm in for this. I love it. Or when she's in the car feeding him chicken McNuggets. <laughs> That's not like high great comedy writing but it's fun oh totally i mean we still don't know what are in mcnuggets today they might be murray <laughs> get real who's that girl to me has one of the funniest pieces of trivia which is that murray the tiger murray the cougar actually escaped for a day <laughs> i don't know do you know this story i don't so he escaped during filming and they had to shut production down while they went and found him around the streets of New York City, which I just find so hilarious <laughs> that while filming in New York City, there's just this loose wildcat roaming the streets and could have been a real disaster. Can you imagine if that like cougar, that tiger had jumped in front of the seven train? Because I can't imagine recasting for a wildcat <laughs> was easy back in 1987. I guess Madonna was not on the set that day and she wasn't able to whistle him back yeah, in exactly. his <laughs> I also think there's a couple other things that can be kind of reconsidered about this film. What didn't land as camp in 1987 about this movie really lands as camp now. Mm. And I think there's a couple different things in the movie that really stood out to me. There's a scene where after Madonna is released from prison, uh, Griffin Dunn, who uh, it plays this guy named Loudon, which is the most like rich, <laughs> pompous name you could give somebody. But anyway, they end up at a mall and they go into a Sam Goody store and Madonna starts stealing all these cassettes. There's also they drive around town in a Rolls Royce, which, you know, is sort of a symbolism of a rich car. And that Rolls Royce gets like caked in graffiti. And when you look at some of the graffiti on it, it just is funny now. Somebody puts red rum, you know, murder <laughs> spelled backwards on it. I find that it's very much a throwback to those old screwball comedies way back in cinema history, but it's fractured and filtered through this strange 80s dumb comedy lens. There's not a lot of distance between movies like Trading Places, One Crazy Summer, Back to School. It perfectly fits alongside of those types of movies. And there's that comforting feel. And that's sort of another thing that I think really works is that this movie is a homage to the late 80s in New York. You get the skyline, you get, you know, the docks on the river. Uh, incidentally, Stanley Tucci's first movie credit is as a dock worker. You look for him in the first five minutes, you'll see him. Uh, young Tucci there lifting some boxes <laughs> in the dock. But it's just such an interesting caricature of New York in the 1980s. So is Desperately Seeking Susan. So there's not that much difference in the sense of, you know, them both being set in the city. But to me, 
Who's That Girl has a little bit more of a New York vibe to it. How about we jump to Glitter, which many will know Glitter was considered a huge box office flop when it was released in September 2001. Maybe not the best time to be releasing movies, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, it only made $5.3 million at the box office on a $20 million budget. It was also so critically panned. I think there were reports coming out, you know, three or four months before this movie was even released that it was just going to be a dud. Mariah Carey was even on like MTV's TRL and hinted that the movie wasn't going to be very good (laughs) weeks before uh, it was released. And sure enough, it came out about 10 days after the September 11th attacks, one of the first movies to actually hit theaters uh, after those attacks. And it just fizzled at the box office and really got panned. But I think there are some things that should be reconsidered about this movie. And the biggest thing to me is that everyone now loves a sort of narrative of a star is born. We have the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper vehicle. Obviously there's like many iterations of that with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, Judy Garland. Right, well, it would sound familiar if she went with the record guy, but she absolutely does not. So therefore it is nothing like that <laughs> at all. The boyfriend is a young, cute DJ and um, they end up together and stop laughing. <laughs> Let me start that again. <laughs> Why? It would have been good. I played it off. This movie is essentially A Star is Born. It just is basically the lifetime movie version of A Star is Born. And I don't think that's Mariah Carey's fault. I think that's a product of the time when this movie came out. And to me, there's something really interesting about re-watching this. Let's, okay, I'm not going to go crazy here and say it's a good movie. <laughs> Mariah Carey can certainly sing. She sings all throughout this thing. But it still just feels like you're watching you know, a, a, a lifetime TV movie from 2001. Anything to reconsider about this movie? Well, choose your marketing window more wisely, I think <laughs> is the first, <laughs> which makes it very interesting that had this not dropped so closely to September 11th, maybe it would have done a little bit better just out of curiosity. It is not that far off to believe that so many of her fans would have turned out for this movie. Timing definitely plays a part of it. I also think it's true that like you can't entirely blame the failure of this soundtrack on 9-11 because Jay-Z and Nickelback and Bob Dylan, they all had albums drop on that day and their sales were fine. So it does kind of hint that there was something off. She wasn't just a star. She was like the biggest star of the 1990s. I think she had more Mm -hmm. number one hits in the 1990s than any other singer. She might even still own that record today. And you're right. This was released at a time where she had not had a bad album yet in her career. Every single album that she had released since then had something on it that went to number one. Tons of hits under her belt. And I think that's why this falter is maybe surprising in in a way that Madonna's and Who's That Girl isn't as surprising because she had flopped with Shanghai Surprise, even though she got great reviews in Desperately Seeking Susan. Mariah had a lot of success and maybe hadn't quite encountered failure on this level. And I I feel bad for her, but you know, the nervous breakdown that kind of happened, as you alluded to with the TRL and in advance of this coming out, knowing that it was probably a bad product after this dropped Virgin Records canceled her a hundred million five album contract 
dropped her from the label. I mean, that is a fall. But that's another reason why I want folks to reconsider this, because if you go deeper, this period, and especially this movie and this album, are sort of Mariah Carey's fight back against the industry. And what I mean by that is, yes, you're totally right. This hit at a moment in her career where uh, her and Tommy Mottola, who were together for a while, uh, busted up and and he was just ruthless, like a total asshole with her career um, and basically tried to like get her almost blacklisted from, mm-hmm. from working, which is just so terrible. What I really think is interesting to take away from this is for a decade and a half, everyone thought glitter and anything associated with it, the music, the actors, the performances was garbage. And instead, what you started to see in the last few years is kind of this movement to bring justice to glitter. <laughs> and I have to hand it to Mariah Carey's fan base, the Lamely, uh, not the family, the Lamely, because they really fought to, to rehabilitate this movie, but especially the soundtrack that came with it uh, in sort of like in history. And what I mean by that is, you know, nearly two decades after the movie and the soundtrack were released, they mobilized to make it a number one hit. Mariah has started to play music from it again live in her shows. And to me, it kind of is this narrative of like, okay, yeah, this was the moment where the industry tried to smack me down, where record executives who are assholes tried to force me down, mm-hmm. where, you know, my movie career, everyone thought was going to be tanked forever. You know, it's like she has this ability to bounce back from it and just become a like unyielding part of our pop culture. To this day, you cannot get through a Christmas without her. And she's still <laughs> releasing new music, releasing new specials, uh, and just has this incredible presence in our pop culture. I did not know this actually. And I, I had seen Glitter back in like 2002, but re-watching it, I was like, holy crap, I didn't know Padma Lakshmi was in this. Did you? No, I was totally surprised when she came on screen as the main singer who is stealing Mariah Carey's yes, voice. Yes, she's Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Top Chef host. Mm-hmm. The, you know, she's on Hulu now with her own special, which is great. Like, I, I love her. Um, but seeing her in this really threw me for a loop. I was like, oh, she's like the villain in so many ways. She also, and maybe this is for the purpose of the movie, but man, she can't sing. Oof. No, she. I mean, she did a good job making that funny and being the the diva of of that, being the front woman when she can't sing and and the butt of the joke as the DJs are like, wait, that's her? No, she doesn't <laughs> sing like that. One thing I find interesting about flops is the aftermath, the fallout that comes from a flop. As we're talking about Mariah Carey, the fallout to her career, we can talk about, as we did with Who's That Girl, what happened to Madonna's acting career after that. Both of these women did not go on to make immediate successful films after that, but Mariah Carey was getting kudos for Precious later, so... Her acting chops are maybe not as questionable as we might have thought. These women are resilient. Flops happen. You know it's a part of your career and you move on. That brings us to then the third movie, Jennifer Lopez's Gigli, uh, which we do want to spend a bit of time talking about in terms of why and how it's considered a flop. And then also, is there anything to reconsider about it? So Eric, do you want to tell us why Gili was considered a flop? It's just terrible. (laughs) (laughs) 
here's what I was hoping. I was hoping I was going to sit down and watch a movie that everybody said, oh, this is trash. Stay away from it. And then I watch it and hey, this isn't actually as bad as people said. I wish that were the case. Instead, what I found was it's just as bad as people say. Do you you feel the same way? It is very hard to think of something to rehabilitate from this movie (laughs) or to reconsider from this movie in addition to just how critically panned this movie was, how much of a punchline this movie was. It also just did historically bad at the box office where it made $7 million on a, get this, $75 million budget. You are absolutely going to walk away thinking, what the hell did they spend $75 million on? Can you think of anything in this movie that would be worth that much? No, it's so shocking that they lost that much money. You think, hey, gangster themes. Oh, we're going to have some action, car chases maybe. So much of the film is spent in Ben Affleck's apartment. Come to Gili expecting the action Stay for the long, drawn-out character studies of Ben and Jennifer. (laughs) The story is just a little bit boring, a little bit incoherent. The way they handle the mentally disabled character in it is clunky. Al Pacino shows up and does kind of a terrible Scarface impression. Christopher Walken walks through the movie in a scene that leaves you scratching your head. It's a lot. What am I watching? This is so fucked up. There was a different ending. Focus groups didn't like it. There were rewrites, a different character backstory for Jennifer Lopez. It's meant to beg the question, was this right by committee? Was this a better movie in previous versions? Did it just get edited to death? And I don't think the answer is yes on that either. I think it still would have been a mess, no matter how many rewrites they did. Well, that'll be the first question I ask, you know, once I get to heaven. Was Geely really supposed to end that way? (laughs) (laughs) If you tell me there's a movie where Jennifer Lopez is a lesbian, I'm going to be somewhat interested to see what they do with that. (laughs) And yet it still somewhat doesn't come together at all here. If I'm being generous, I could say they were going for defining a different type of fluidity. In every relationship, there's a bull and a cow. It just so happens that in this relationship right here with me and you, I'm the bull. You're the cow. All right? Bull. Cow. Got that? (laughs) (laughs) J-Lo doesn't own the bombing of this movie in the same way that the other two, Mariah Carey and Madonna, often get blamed for Who's Mm -hmm. That Girl and Glitter. Yeah, there's worse movies than Geely out there. And the reason I say that is because this movie is also so focused on Ben Affleck that I think he bears quite a bit of like the, oh, this is his bomb too. The only thing I feel bad about is that J-Lo didn't release a soundtrack to Gili. <laughs> Through the eyes of love, parentheses, Gili. <laughs> what part did the media play in the, the whole Benefer frenzy and how popular they were and people were obsessed with their relationship that they were probably acting out a different script than what the focus groups wanted, what the studio wanted. And maybe that converting a lesbian ending and relationship is the direct outcome of this director wanting to make a different film and the studio saying everybody wants to see them together. They clearly have to end up together. It sort of hit at a moment where Some of the things that they were trying to handle in this storyline, an intellectually disabled character, 
a sort of thing where a straight guy is attracted to a lesbian. It was happening in a moment of sort of cultural reset, I think, about how those things are done. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is like, if you go back and, and look at like Rain Man, people weren't that offended by Dustin Hoffman's portrayal. Some were, but, and, and it's certainly now it doesn't hold up nearly as well, but back then he won an Oscar for it. And mm. like things changed in the 15 years since Rain Man to the point where I don't think you can actually have a character who isn't disabled trying to play into tropes mm -hmm. about what it means to live with an intellectual disability. It just doesn't land. And similarly, when you get this moment of like Ben Affleck, he's not trying to do this but it feels like he's trying to convert Jennifer Lopez mm -hmm. from being a lesbian to a straight woman. And yes, they sleep together, but there's, it, it just doesn't land. It doesn't land in the same way. I think this movie might've landed if it came out in 1985. All right. So we talked a little bit about this, but just where do these movies sort of fit into the legacies of these stars? JLo has definitely had many more movies in the bank than either Madonna and Mariah and much more success after Gigli, even before it, Selena, out of sight, even the Oscar buzz she was gaining for the recent Hustlers. JLo has what it takes as an actress, as well as a singer. And speaking about coming back from flops and that scapegoating question, they are being directed by other folks. They are at the mercy of not controlling their image like they can in a music video. That makes a lot of sense to me and maybe is why J-Lo lands a bit more as an actress than Mariah and Madonna. And what I mean by that is I can remember some Jennifer Lopez videos, but they don't stand out to me as like massive productions that mm -hmm. would have had world premiere slots on, you know, MTV at peak hours, right? Like mm -hmm. I can remember Madonna having so many video premieres, Mariah having so many video premieres. And like when Honey came out or Fantasy came out or Heartbreaker came out, it was like a mm -hmm. movie premiere. It was like this right. huge thing. I can't really think about that with JLo. And maybe some of that is J-Lo is this interesting like hybrid of was she a singer first or an actress first? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that you can really answer that because yes, she was doing music early, but she was also a fly girl on In Living Color. She, you know, did Money Train really early on with Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes way before she had any sort of success in her music career. And so it's an interesting thing where, you know, it's the chicken and egg. Was she a singer or an actor first? And I don't know what J-Lo, to be honest with you, but I think there's more experience there in the same way that like Mariah and Madonna only have to fall back on their experience they had working with directors making music videos. So it's like, there's just a different level of experience too in watching them. Like, I think JLo knows what to do when a director says go. All right, well, just like a diva finishing their concert, that brings us to a close today. If you enjoyed this episode, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and continue listening as this season we'll be exploring the concept of pop culture flops. Thanks again and stay jiggly. Um, it's Gigli. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jiggly. <laughs> <laughs>